Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we are in the middle of a series for Lent where we're talking about the biblical stations of the cross. Uh, so far we've gone from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to being scourged and crowned with thorns. Sarah, where are we picking up today? So today we are talking about the three stations where there, where Jesus is physically moving with the cross. So we start with Jesus taking up his cross to uh, meeting Simon of Cyrene, who is then carries his cross the rest of the way because he's already been flogged and can't do it anymore. And then finally, before he arrives where his cross will be planted and he will be hung, uh, he meets the women of Jerusalem and gives them a very special message. So that's where <laughs> we're going. So let's back up and start with uh, Jesus is taking up his cross. My wonderings and ponderings, that is not fully explained. So there aren't a lot of trees in the Middle East. Like, so, but like... They had to use wood to, like, make these crosses. Why aren't the crosses already in the place where they're going? Well, I guess it, it kind of lends itself to the whole public humiliation. But do they, do, do a couple of soldiers every once in a while have to, like, carry the crosses back into the city? See, I'm wondering if it's just the crossbar, if it's just the horizontal piece that oh, he's having yeah. to carry. So do they have to recarry? Like, because I'm guessing they reuse them, and it's not yeah. like everybody gets their own brand new cross. I'm pretty sure they weren't concerned about sanitation, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, and I, I've seen it done both ways in the movies. I've heard about it done both ways, where you carry a whole physical cross, you know. I mean, that's more dramatic. Get, yes. But I think movies. what you said, Steve, is probably more accurate. Is there, there's these, you know, the the vertical part of the cross is in the ground, the yeah. and then people have to carry the cross beam, which makes more sense to weight wise. Yeah. But again, then who carries them the even the cross bars back into the city? Do they just load up a wagon every once in a while? Do they have like? Do they just say, "Hey, you, you, and you"? Do you carry you carry some of these crossbars back into the city? It kind of makes you wonder, and I only say this with my tongue half in cheek. Um, we talked once upon a time about how the unofficial rule was the Roman could make you carry a pack for a mile, you mm-hmm. know, like going the extra mile. But like, I have a feeling that the Romans mm-hmm. had no compunction about. Hey, you Judean, carry this for. I mean, like that, like yeah, I, it, pe- yeah. People who had no problem crucifying people with no evidence and making people carry their packs, I, I think they could conscript labor wherever they could. Um, and yeah, I, I bet they got as much mileage out of one of those beams as they could before it wouldn't take any nails anymore. I mean, it, it seems to me too like that crucifixion as a practice because it was. Uh, as broadly practiced and widely and cruelly practiced as it was during Rome and during empires before them as well as it developed, that, like, it was any wooden stake or any kind of place you could string somebody up would work so that they could do it from a tree as well. And that seems to be part of the play that, like, Paul makes later on in, in his writings when he talks, he uses the Old uh, Old Testament commandment about him and he uh, hung on a tree is cursed and then says Jesus bore the curse even though it is unlikely that a little growing physical tree is what Jesus is crucified to. I think there is this sense of just getting strung up. Maybe in the same way that like in the Old West, if the you know lynch mob was going to hang you, or even if the sheriff was, they could build a gallows, or they could, oh, they got a tall tree out there, they could just string you mm-hmm. up there. The, the point is just to kill somebody and do it publicly. 
they could be sloppy about it and use a tree or whatever. I kind of get the sense that maybe there was, you know, they would have posts set up, you know, in a certain um, distance apart along main highways or thoroughfares, and when they needed to use them to crucify people, they could. Um, and then they were just ready for whenever. And, like, there's something kind of creepy and uh, terrifying about if you're walking into the city, even if no one's been crucified lately, but you just see the post walking in, there's this reminder of... If I don't mind my manners, if I mm-hmm. stick a toe out of line, they could string me up here too. There's there's a spot for it. There's an open cross where I could go too. That's I mean, if if you were the empire, anything you can do to get people to live in fear is part of your your bag of tricks, and that seems like that's a piece of it. But I, I would imagine too, it's at least possible that. If you're carrying the crossbeam, they're tying it to your arms too. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because yeah, I mean, because you, you, you picture it like, and often they'll say that like people weren't just nailed up to crosses. That that would by by the mechanics and physiology of human beings, that would just tear through a hand instead of holding you up there. But chances are you'd be tied up there mm-hmm. as well, and that it wasn't just the, the pain of the nails, but that your whole body is then overstretched out and by exhaustion you suffocate. Um, but so it's possible you could be affixed to almost like a yoke. And that then yeah. it becomes helpful for the Romans that whatever effort it is to bring the crossbeams back into town when they need them, that it's like handcuffs. It's like now we've tied your arms to this beam so you're not going to get away on that walk. Even if you have the energy to, you mm-hmm. are prohibited from um, you know attacking somebody and you're carrying this weight. My guess is that's a piece. It's a shame thing, but also how do we keep you from one last gasp trying to get away? Because not everybody's scourged like Jesus was before right. they're crucified. Right. But, you know, we we're, we're kind of ended last episode on a really tough note talking about, you know, the scourging of Jesus and how painful that would have been. And, you know, thinking even just putting the robe on him and, and, and taking that back off, mm-hmm. you know, and how it would, you know, how like cloth gets stuck if you yeah. have a scrape or something and, and having to pull, just even pull a Band-Aid off of a scar and how, mm-hmm. like, um, to think of this wooden beam right that is not like probably had not been finely sanded no no i mean this is just a rough wooden beam that's right. gonna um you know that it's got holes in it that's you know it's just been it's a it's a law before it's had anything done to it mm-hmm. and having that and having it tied to jesus's back mm-hmm. and so all that pain that he's suffering from the scourging and he's still bleeding and he's still you know coming off of that pain and now his arms are stretched out and tied to this beam and um, he's weak and the beam's probably 40, 50 pounds, you know, to hold someone's weight. Um, Just the pain that he is going through that he, you know, so it's not just the torture that he suffered. We talked about in the last episode, but the pain that he continues to suffer Mm -hmm. even before the nails are driven in through his wrist and his feet. Mm Mm-hmm. 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 So there's a while where he's carrying it, and then... Then he falls. Okay. Um, and in the midst of that, is that when we're thinking that he uh, the cross is given to Simon and Cyrene to carry? Yes. Okay. I, I believe so. It's interesting to me that the different gospel writers put different emphasis there. That, like, mm-hmm. in John's gospel, there's no mention of Simon and Cyrene at all. It's just Jesus carrying the cross by himself. Mm-hmm. When the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us Simon of Cyrene and that he helps carry it. But even the synoptic gospels, there are different emphasis, right? Like Luke is just, as they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming from the country. And they laid the cross on him and made him carry it for Jesus. Like Jesus never takes up his cross in Luke. It's Mm -hmm. always Simon. Um, But then either Matthew or Mark tells us like, 
that Simon was the father of so and so. Alexander and Rufus, right, yeah. yeah. Right, so like that, there's, uh, and I think he even says something, like doesn't one of the Gospels, Simon actually speaks something? I don't know. Or am I just thinking of a movie that is, where <laughs> Simon like says, like, I will carry, I don't know, I don't remember. I'm thinking that it's in Mark's Gospel they get that weird reference to um, Alexander and Rufus. Um, That's the one that I'm guessing will, if, if he does speak it, it'll probably be that one. Yeah. Um, so in, um, yeah, in Mark's gospel, they compelled the passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then they led him to the place called Golgotha. But it's one of those moments where like Mark seems to assume his readers know who Alexander and Rufus are. Um, and I mean, presumably that these would have been people who eventually came to faith in Christ, that somehow the story is that somebody came to faith and somebody, that this, this, terrible uh, salvific moment happens because Simon of Cyrene was willing to carry the cross. Um, it seems also significant to me. Maybe Mark doesn't um, play it out or, or, or um, uh, milk it as much as he could, but as much as Jesus talks in the Gospels, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, about carrying a cross and following him, that here is literally somebody who picks up a cross and carries it, um, and that you kind of get the sense that like there's this winking remembrance of like, this is what mm-hmm. it... To, it looks like to follow Jesus. It it will mean carrying a cross, that, that kind of thing. And now that we've looked at all four Gospels, I, I'm realizing that none of them talk about Jesus following. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's from the other stations of the cross. Right, I mean, because um, this is the biblical, biblical stations of the cross. Not the, the traditional In the yeah. traditional one, there's three, three times he falls. Three, three yeah. times he falls. Like, Jesus falling all over the place, which, again, who can blame him? He's just been flogged mm-hmm. and tortured. But, um... But yeah, we don't get, um, since the Bible doesn't actually mention Jesus falling, I mean, presumably... I mean, I I would imagine that something caused the Romans to pull somebody in for the crowd to to carry the cross for Jesus. Yeah. Unless he was just being physically too slow. Well, or it's possible that it was evident after even just trying to mount it on him that he wasn't going to be able to shoulder it. Oh, yeah. But it's not. It, we should read that not as a moment of niceness. It's not kindness oh, from yeah. the Romans. Um, it's not. And, and th- th- I think that's important here. That mm-hmm. at, at no point is it like the Romans is like, oh, we've been too mean to Jesus. Let's have someone mm-hmm. carry his cross. They are cruel, but they're also brutal and efficient. And it's yeah. all right. We got to get this going, or he's not. He's going to die before it gets up there. And we need a spectacle. We need him to mm-hmm. die publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is much more, and again, it's it's one more way for Rome to exercise its dominance. If they can bully somebody who's walking, you know, just walking into town, minding his own business, you got nothing to do with Jesus. But here, you, and you know, it's you 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 kind of get the sense too that from Rome's vantage point, they all look the same to us. Who cares? You just pick one of them. They'll mm-hmm. you do it. Um, that it's it's again the the cruelty and the hatred that's part of the the way the empire runs things. Do you think that because um, we had. Previously talked that the crossbar of the cross would have been used as a yoke or as a fetter. Um, do you think they untied Jesus to give the crossbar to or the cross to Simon, or did Simon just kind of also help carry Jesus? Oh, I don't know. I suppose either is possible. Um, the, and depending on who you, which gospel you're reading, like back at, when we were looking at Luke a minute ago, the language suggests that Jesus is following behind, that they are sort of physically separate enough yeah. that Jesus is walking behind. But yeah, it's possible to imagine a, a circumstance where that starts out with Simon sort of shouldering side by side with like almost like an arm around him kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
the, I guess the, the thing I, w- I want to stay with for a moment about that idea of like the physical metaphor, somebody carrying a cross and taking up your cross and following Jesus, is that we have a way 2,000 years later of hearing that as only a metaphor, as like you might be called to sacrifice something for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we have these ways of picking little petty sacrifices like, I gave up pop for Lent, Jesus. That's my that's my cross to bear. Or, you know, um, I was willing to, well, we're, we're tightening our belts around. We're trying to be good, you know, save up some money. So we're going to cancel the, the you know deluxe package of cable stations. That's my cross to bear. And no, when Jesus said you might have to carry a cross to follow him, it is because it was dangerous and uh, you were going to be executed by the state for following following him because the the empire saw you as a threat that this this wasn't a metaphor when jesus said it we've turned it into a metaphor and jesus meant if you want to follow me you're going to get in trouble you will be seen as a as a danger as a as a threat uh, as an enemy of the state um and at some point we forgot that or decided that christians were always nice and well respected and well liked by the state when for the first several hundred years that was not the case and jesus knew it so we ready to move on to the next station to the Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem. All right, let's do it, right? So, so it, maybe this is a moment because this is a, a lesser known scene, right? It's probably mm-hmm. one that's worth like at least saying out loud. Somebody else feeling excited about reading it out loud, or would you like me to? What? Okay, I think I have it here. Yeah, it's from Luke 23. Yes. Um, so this is right, you know, this is in the same kind of section that Simon of Cyrene is listed in, um, starting in verse 27. A great number of people followed him, and among them were women who were be- beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So, maybe we should just start and say, this feels like a weird moment. Right? I mean, like, yeah. It's it's really countercultural because this is like women in first century Judaism, like their whole purpose is to marry and to have sons. <laughs> so to be told that, oh, you're going like to bless the barren because they're barren, like that's super countercultural. Right. Like that's not going to be what any woman is going to expect to hear. And it seems like the thrust of what Jesus is saying here is that, like, there's going to come a point where it's so bad for you in Jerusalem here that you'll wish you didn't have to have little mouths to take care of. You I mean, yeah. like, where it will be terrible, where life in the city will be awful. Um, and it seems to me like that this is Jesus fully aware of where the path that the the city and the nation of Judea are headed toward is going to eventually be a final confrontation with the empire and that it will get very bad. And, and mm-hmm. it did. Uh, in what, the year AD 70? Yes. The Romans come and they sack the city, they destroy it, they burn the, the walls down, they burn the temple down to the ground, and all that's left even to this day is a corner of the foundation we call the Temple Mount. Um, and it got bad. It was, a, it was a siege, and like any siege, things get terrible on the inside of the besieged city where food gets where people are forced to make difficult choices about, do I watch my children starve? Do I kill them prematurely so they don't have to starve and I don't have to watch them suffer you know, the long way? Um, what, what do I do as everything else gets terrible? And in a way, Jesus is also echoing what Jerusalem had gone through before the first time this all happened before, that uh, a good bit of the, the warning and the message of the prophets was, 
if the, if the people of God kept turning away, God would send the empire of the day, the Babylonians, and they did. They surrounded the city. They besieged it. It took forever. The entire book of Lamentations is written about how terrible things got on the inside of the city, even to the point of cannibalism. Um, it, like, it's terrible. And... Um, that when, so when Jesus gives this warning, it, he, you know, they're all like, you're, they're, they're upset that Jesus is about to be killed. And Jesus says, it's going to get bad for all of you. So mm-hmm. don't, don't weep for me. I, I'm, I'm, and maybe, maybe there's this sense of Jesus knows Easter's coming. <laughs> um, he's been dropping hints like that through the gospels that Jesus mm-hmm. knows resurrect, but like, it's going to get bad and it's going to get bad for all of you. This is your warning. You should have seen this. Um, you should have seen this coming. And, not only does Jerusalem get burned and destroyed, but in that same era around AD 70, I'm thinking is when Masada happens, where uh, there's this fortress out a little bit closer to the Dead Sea, where there's a group of uh, people who had, again, fought up against the Romans, and when the Romans cracked down on them, they besieged the fortress, and instead of being given over to the Romans and surrendering, and probably getting killed by the Romans, they they methodically committed suicide, all of them there on the mountain, including families, and they had to, you know, even, like, cast lots about who's going to kill who so that they didn't have to, like, it, it was terrible. It was gruesome and bloody and awful, and Jesus sort of has this awareness of, like, the, it, the, the way it feels like it, it's a powder keg, and this is going to blow up, and Jesus is well aware. Jesus, in addition to being the Son of God, also knows how to read the times well, and knows that he's watching the, the situation deteriorate there in the city, and that there will come a point where it gets that bad. Um, so it, and it, it, it's weird, not only because the, the imagery seems weird about, about not having children being, being barren and things like that, it's weird, too, that we Christians who focus so much on Jesus' death and resurrection being the center of the universe, the center of history, and Jesus saying, you think this is bad, it's going to get worse. <laughs> um, but it seems to me like there is something very much, like, out of the, the, the historical moment that, yeah, this is exactly the way you would have told the story if you... Um, had lived through that destruction of Jerusalem, or if that was the, the fear, you'd, you'd want to call attention to how bad that was and that Jesus was aware of how bad that was going to be. And this harkens back to just the beginning of that week mm-hmm. when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and um, the triumphal entry, and he looks over Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem, and in Luke 19, um, he says, um, starting in verse 42, if you... If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, indeed the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground and your children within you, and they will will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. He's been warned that, like, you can change this trajectory. Right. But and they choose not to. You, you're yeah. choosing not to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm remembering something I read by N.T. Wright years ago where he talks about this moment and sort of sees it as that all of Jesus' ministry, all of his whole life, that it's not like suddenly on a Palm Sunday Jesus starts to give these warnings, but that mm-hmm. all of Jesus' ministry is an alternative way of being Israel. And as an alternative to the zealots on the one hand who think the way to deal with the Romans is let's let's raise up a violent army and we'll overthrow them through guerrilla warfare. And on the other, he's being critical of folks like the Sadducees who just kind of sell out to the Romans, that Jesus is offering a different way of responding. And again, it's 
an alternative to fight or flight. That like basically the response of other groups is either we'll we'll fight against the Romans with with uh, we'll raise up an army or we'll give in and cower or we'll run away to the Dead Sea like the Essenes did. And that Jesus is offering a different way of being Israel, and he has been all along in his life. And when it finally comes to a head, he's like, "This was your chance to try and follow my way of being Israel," um, and that because because the people by and large reject Jesus' way of being Israel, that sort of embodied in all of his teachings and the way he acts and treats people, that because of that rejection, of course it's going to come to a head one way or the other. Something is going to spark um, uh, violence, and Jesus knows when it happens it's going to be bad. Um, because of, of this moment, it, it, I guess it, it reminds me that as much as, as Christians sometimes look at the death of Jesus with this like, salvific fatalism of it had to be this way because that's how the world gets saved there's also something terrible like it didn't have to be this way like it that like the 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 terrible things that are part of human history we are not doomed to have to do them and yet we keep signing up to do them we we keep letting ourselves get swept up into them um and that it's a tragedy when terrible things happen that instead of immediately going well a good thing came out of it therefore it must have been meant to be I don't know that that's the right way to read the, the terrible, tragic things that happen in history. And it's moments like this that that tell me that Jesus doesn't just treat it as, it, it's all right, this is all for the good of the universe, and everybody will save through the cross, so it's fine. That Jesus' response is, yes, this is terrible. The thing I'm going through, this is terrible. It's about to get worse for all of you. And you have this is your moment. This is your chance to turn around. Please don't, don't force this to get worse for all of you. Um, and that probably is... Uh, the meaning behind that last sentence in that this whole weird little exchange for if they do this when the wood is green, what happens when it is dry? Um, I, and again, the, the imagery, even as somebody who is not very um, natural world-minded, is it, 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 if, if you can start a fire with even wet wood, imagine how fast it's going to burn when it's dry. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can wrap my head around that imagery. Um, but yeah, that Jesus, it, like our, our language these days, we talk about tossing a match into a powder keg or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the idea of that this is ripe for a disaster to happen, and when it happens, it'll blow up big, and to, to avoid that, that Jesus is, is, doesn't will for that terrible thing to happen, um, uh, even though Jesus is... We, we still believe that Jesus' resurrection is yet greater than the tragedy of what happens when Jerusalem is destroyed mm-hmm. and, and knocked down and all that. Do you think that um, saying, and this is just kind of half-warm thought that came to mind as you were just speaking, Steve, um, the Pharisees and those that took Jesus before Pilate and wanted him crucified were doing it to save the, you know, if we get one person killed, maybe it will save the mm-hmm. rest of us. Mm-hmm. And is this Jesus saying, you know, yeah, you got your one person killed, but it's not going to save you in the long run. Yeah, I, th- that could that could be sort of a response. Like that strategy isn't gonna isn't gonna save you the way you think it will. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, and and I, I even think like again, there's a certain terrible logic to the 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 motivation of the religious leaders when they say, "Look, Jesus is getting branded as a as a." Uh, guy leading a revolution. If we hand him over, the Romans will say, "Well, all right, we cut off the head of the snake. We'll let we'll let the the people that we won't mm-hmm. we won't you know crack down on all the people." But Jesus' response seems to be, "I wasn't the real problem here. I I wasn't calling for a violent revolution, and now you've given the Romans the ability to do this, mm-hmm. and and they were not they're not going to stop. I mean, like that's yeah. the thing that even if the religious leaders think, well, maybe the Romans will stop. Maybe this will be the last thing, and after that they'll go back to law and order, and they'll be they'll they'll act within boundaries. No, they they won't. They 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 have never done that, and they never will." Mm-hmm live within boundaries or act uh, rightly or justly. Um, 
I, like in the back of my mind, as we're, as we're as we're going through all these stations, um, while we Christians focus and rightly so on the particular crucifixion of Jesus, it seems to be important to remember that this was such a regular occurrence in ancient Judean life during the Roman years and through all the Roman Empire that I. Part of why the women approach Jesus and are weeping isn't just because it's Jesus, the beloved rabbi, but they are sad to see their own nation and their own people overpowered. You know, that, what, what a terrible thing that we are being so grossly mistreated and, and abused by the Romans. I, I, again, I think the gospel writers write with this sense of irony of like, the, the women of Jerusalem are just sad because one more of their countrymen is being murdered by the Romans. But the gospel writer is like, and here's the son of God. He turns out he's the son of God. But like, there's also this sense of they're not just upset because they know it's Jesus and they believe in Jesus, but more, here's one more person getting killed. And he didn't have to be. And one more, it's one more example of we have no power and the Romans have all of it. And one more example of the Romans think we don't even count as people, that they're okay with torturing us. And Jesus' response then is, yeah, this is bad, but it's going to get worse. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's a place for us to say, too, that the rest of this story of Jesus going to the cross, it, it gets bad before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And like we've said before, too, that, that, that's part of how the, the central story of our faith goes, that it, it's about going all the way to death, to the worst possible. And there, at that point, even when hope has been snuffed out of there being resurrection that comes on the other side of that, um, but not avoiding it. And it reminds me, too, even I mean, like in a way it shouldn't surprise us because we're people who recite the words of the 23rd Psalm over and over in our lives about that God leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's not that, well, I go halfway through the valley of the shadow of death and then that's dark enough, so let's go out to the sun. We've got to go all the way through this. And so we're going to continue to face other difficult moments in this story as we continue on in our next episode, um, but with the reminder that this leads somewhere and that God's going through this with us. So join us next time. See you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.